Welcome to this week's episode of the Big Book Living Alive podcast, a weekly podcast showcasing the 1993 Big Book Seminar presented by Joe and Charlie in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. I am your host, Brad S., and I am an alcoholic. This week, we set our feet upon the path to recovery along with Bill W. It's been a couple of years since Bill has seen the stock market crash and he spent that time between cycling up and down between drinking and being dry long enough to pay off some bills. I think we've all been there. Drink, get paid, pay off some bills, drink again, repeat. Never quite catching up, not, never quite being behind, but always just racing from one to the other on the treadmill. Running on that treadmill could only last so long, and this is what happened to Bill. He wound up in a sanitarium, but the lifeline, the light, the change, the happenstance was that this time he met Dr. Silkworth. He met a gentleman who didn't just believe that every alcoholic that showed up in his hospital was there to die or dry out, go out, and come back and then die. Dr. Silkworth had seen thousands of patients and he had developed an ideology that there was a duality to alcoholism that was an obsession of the mind and a disease of the body, and willpower alone was not going to fix the problem. And Bill, like many of us, was just oozing with willpower. It's the one thing that he had. It had got him along in business. It had kept him sober occasionally, but willpower alone was not going to do it. Let's hear how Joe and Charlie discuss Bill meeting Dr. Silkworth. He said liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Now long, now we're not drinking for fun. We're not drinking for excitement. We're now drinking because we absolutely have to. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Remember last night, Dr. Silkworth said we really cannot differentiate the truth from the false. To us, what we're doing is absolutely normal. We can all see Bill's life going to hell in a handbasket already. Bill can't see that. He feels that he can still control the situation. Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. This is a story within itself. No, Bill was really good at what he did, and even though he was alcoholic and in serious trouble, people knew that Bill had the ability to really make money in stocks. So even though they were not sure about him, they put together another deal, Bill heading it up, and Bill's going to make a lot of money for them and for himself also. And they said, Bill, we're going to financially back you on one condition, that you don't drink. And Bill said, you don't need to worry about me drinking. I'm not about to take a drink. Now, he worked on this thing for a matter of months, and just before it was to be successfully completed, one night they're all sitting in a hotel room, 
somebody passes around a bottle of Applejack. It goes by Bill, and he said, no, thank you, I'm not drinking. Next time it made the rounds, the guy next to him said, Bill, this Applejack is called Jersey Lightning, finest Applejack in the world. And Bill's mind said, hmm, I've never tasted any Jersey Lightning. And with no more thought than that, he took a drink, triggered the allergy, couldn't stop, and blew the whole deal. Now, the importance in that little story lies within the next statement. He said, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. For the first time, Bill could really differentiate the true from the false. For the first time, he could see what alcohol was really doing to him. And just like all the rest of us, he swore off, trotted out his willpower, and said, I'll never take another drink as long as I live. Bill had a tremendous amount of willpower. Self-made man, everything he'd ever done, he had done on his own. And he assumed, now that I want to quit drinking, all I got to do is use my willpower and everything would be all right. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises. But my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. You know, Bill didn't under, didn't know yet about the physical allergy and the mental obsession, so he used the only tool he had available to him when he decided to stop drinking, and that was his willpower. So and Bill, we know, had lots and lots of willpower, and he used it here. But shortly after, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I'd taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seen being near just that. Bill began to question his sanity. If his willpower is not working, and you know he tried it, he began to question his sanity. Am I crazy? Is that the problem? Am I going crazy? How many of us have done the same thing? And he says, renewing my resolve, he pulled out his real willpower again. I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to replace by cocksureness. He said, I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe and to telephone. In no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. And I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. The remorse and horror and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapsed and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My rithering, my rithering nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again, but so would I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself now? No, not now. Then the mental fog settled down. Jen would fix that. So two bottles in oblivion. Bill isn't a drinking for oblivion now. We can see how he started out drinking for pleasure, and then he started to drink because of the effects of some of the trouble he was getting into, and now he was drinking for the sickest effect of all, total oblivion, because his mind was racing uncontrollably. And certainly I can identify with that. In the last three or four or five years of my drinking, my mind raced uncontrollably. And the only way for me to stop that was to take a drink and reach for oblivion to get out of it, and I can identify with Bill, and that's where he is now at this time. He said, the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. 
Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window of the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weekly. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor, lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative, and this combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity, so did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. Now we see a guy approaching the end of his alcoholism. He's actually dying from malnutrition. If something didn't take place in his life pretty fast, Bill wouldn't be around very much longer. Bill was very lucky. He said, my brother-in-law is a physician. This was his sister's husband, Dr. Leonard Strong. And he said, through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. This is the town's hospital in New York City. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Belladonna treatment was a drug that they used in those days, a member of the nightshade family, and they would give them this drug and it would fool the body into thinking it had alcohol in it. And it was used during withdrawal. Today they use Valium for that. Hydrotherapy is where they would take you in a shower room, lay you out on a gurney, and you had showers all the way around the room alternating hot and cold water. Didn't cure alcoholism, but it made a clean drunk out of you either. <laughs> we saw some of that over in Australia. And he said, best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. Now, this is when he met Dr. Silkworth. And Dr. Silkworth sat down and talked to him and explained to him his ideas about the physical allergy and the obsession of the mind. And Bill said, it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. You know, Bill thought he was going crazy when he couldn't quit drinking. And Dr. Silkworth explained to him, no, you're not going crazy. Just the fact is that due to the obsession of the mind, willpower will not do you any good. Bill was relieved to hear that. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. Now this was the summer of 1933, and Bill left the town's hospital knowing for the first time what his problem really was, and he assumed, now that I know what the problem is, I'll not have to drink anymore. Self-knowledge would fix it. Let's see where he goes from here. But it was not, <clears throat> for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This is a year later, the summer of 1934, we go back into the town's hospital for the second time. And again, Dr. Silkworth explains to him the nature of the illness, the physical allergy and the mental obsession. This was a finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife would inform that, was informed that we would all end with heart failure during delirium tremors, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. 
She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker of the asylum. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I who thought so well of myself and my abilities of my capacity to mount obstacles was cornered at last. Now I was plunged into the dark, joining the endless possession of thoughts who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What, I, what would I not give to make amends, but that was over now. You know, Bill had all this hope, and he was always the optimistic for tomorrow. No matter how bad things got, tomorrow was going to be a better day. But here at the end, Bill is hopeless. He can't even get it up and say tomorrow's going to be a better day. He thought I might as well just give up and go on to the bitter end, as, as many of us do. So at the end of this week's episode, Bill is not in a good place. He's pretty down. Because as mentioned, liquor is not a luxury anymore. And Bill has been in and out of the hospital multiple times. And he's annoyed at himself. And I probably would be too. Here I have the answer. Okay, it's not just me. It's my body and my mind. But you know, having the answer does not mean that you have the solution. The solution comes when you have the answer along with the problem and you have steps to fix it or make it change. As an example, if you hurt your arm at work and you do not have an x-ray machine like they did not back in the 1800s, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, looks like you sprained it. You might have broken it. I don't know. And you decide, oh, it's okay. And you go back and you do the same thing again. And you do the same thing again. And each time you're damaging that arm and you don't know why. You don't know if it's broken. You don't know if it's strained. You have no answer. So then the x-ray machine comes along. And the next time you go to the doctor, the doctor says, here's this brand new machine. And they take an x-ray and you see that it is broken. Now imagine... They hadn't invented the cast yet. So they let you go and you go back to work and you do it again. And until they invent the cast, until they invent a solution to the problem, because they have the answer to the issue, then you can start having some success. Then you can mend. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. If you'd like just the raw Joe and Charlie portion of the podcast, that is available on our Patreon site. The link to that is available on our website or in the pinned comment. Until next week, this is the Big Book Living Alive, Joe and Charlie Podcast.